Since the beginning, technology has indelibly shaped how the music business has evolved. Many of the issues we talk about on this show wouldn't exist if the vinyl record and multi-track recording had never been invented. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. In the modern era, it seems like not a day goes by without a new app or service springing up that promises the solution to a problem facing musicians, a new way to discover or play music, or a new way to get paid. But for every Spotify that launches in the marketplace, there are dozens if not hundreds of tech startups that fail. Tech may have formed the music industry, but it's not always a happy marriage. Is there a way to think about this profitably, or are we doomed to be victims of history? It's all coming up on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to user researcher and trade journalist Kyle Boleyn. Kyle, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you for having me. So today we are talking about technology and music. Dun, dun, dun. So one of the things that I think just from my position as a person who runs a record label is every single day and for the last several years, you know, this has been true. I'm, I get at least one email a day from a new startup that is talking about how their product, their app, their whatever is going to solve a problem facing musicians and labels today. And the thing that's so interesting to me about that is that a lot of the time I will look at that and I'll say, wow, I didn't realize that was a problem. So I feel like there's this disconnect a lot of the time between these tech startups and the musicians that they they think that they're serving or helping. It's almost like they're technology in search of a problem, hoping that they have <laughs> developed the solution. Exactly. Yes. So I'd be curious, what's maybe the most recent one that comes to mind where they said, hey, Kill Rockstars, we've got this excellent new app. It's going to promote or market your music in some way. And you just kind of like shrugged your shoulders like, this isn't really a problem I have. And if it is, you don't really have the scale to solve it. Well, you know, I think for me, it's more a situation where what'll happen is I'll get an email it'll say, here's a great way for artists to promote their own music. So next time your artist is on stage, they just tell everyone in the audience to text this number and, you know, buy their CD or download their tour dates or whatever it is that they're saying. And and I always laugh at that point because I'm like, okay, this designer has clearly never tried to get an artist to do anything because my personal experience is that it's really tough to get artists to do stuff like that. Now, I know that that has changed, but you also have to take into account the bigger an artist is, you know, when you have these artists who are on major labels, they have teams of people who are doing things who can do things like tweet for them or whatever. And and a lot of times it's just not feasible to have artists that are on a smaller scale doing some of this, these things that, that these apps are supposed to help them with. For me, the first thing that comes to mind is if only it were that easy, right? right. Not only do you need to <laughs> convince the artist to blurb to their fans about this new service and then get on their phones, of course, which they're already holding in their hands, text message to a very specific number, and then have that connected to their credit cards in some way, and then magically get their music distributed to their phones, get it on their phones, get the fan ready and willing to listen to it. Again, if only it were that easy to connect 
artists to their fans and for a transaction to take place. But oftentimes there is a supreme disconnect between the best way for an artist to distribute their music to the fan and the way in which the fan actually consumes and discovers music in their daily life. Exactly. And you wrote an article, and I don't remember the year, it's in your book, about music, you know, sort of the the false promise of music discovery and how, you know, the services that spring up that say, we're going to help people discover music are by and large not that effective because people don't have that problem of discovering music. And, you know, first of all, I don't know if you if you stand by that article because that was some years ago. But second of all, I just think I think that's a really interesting niche because I think what we see is that the services that have done the best in the last five years have been the services that have presented something in a new way to people where people have just said, oh, this is easy. I just have to press this button and music plays or whatever. So I do know which article that you're talking about. and. My current stance on music discovery has updated a little bit. With the emergence of Discover Weekly on Spotify and its new companion, Your Daily Mix, there is a ease and pleasure of music discovery that was not previously available in any other products. So formerly, many services offered discovery by means of introducing you to new, trending, obscure bands. And I've always been a proponent of the idea that most people aren't looking to discover indie music that is trending on blogs in some way. However, Discover Weekly uniquely combines your current taste in music, the music that is in your playlist, and tries to connect you to the bands that are in other people's playlists. So every Monday, Discover Weekly comes out. It's a brand new mix of 30 songs by artists that you might like. Now, as a companion to that, your daily mix will take the songs that you've discovered from Discover Weekly or have previously added to your library and will give you a push-button play option that is easily accessible every single day and actually puts out an extremely good mix of those various interests, right? For the first time, we're actually leveraging your music library as the musical brain for your music discovery, which is not previously something that has ever happened. Obviously, Pandora and Shazam are probably the most predominant music discovery services that are out there. Pandora did a great way of taking Now That's What I Call Music and expanding the scope of songs, of popular songs within that world. And, you know, Shazam has done an excellent job of allowing you to discover the songs that are merging in the public spaces in your world. But Spotify has uniquely crafted this great way to recommend unique music and continuously expose you to it over time. And that, to me, has been the ultimate holy grail of music discovery that had not been achieved until this moment. Do you think that that is partially because Spotify was in the marketplace and people were using it already before that feature was put in there, so it became part of you know, an interface that people were already comfortable with? Absolutely. It does have to do with the fact that Spotify was used by millions of users. Therefore, they had distribution for this idea. 
But that idea could have been poorly executed and not provided excellent recommendations. So it took the the combination of the scale of the execution and the quality of the recommendations in order to create the product that we now call Discover Weekly, wherein it's a scarce set of songs that are uniquely tailored to your interests and that you feel like you will miss out on if you don't discover by the following Monday. (laughs) So it's not just that they had scale and that they had users. There's a lot of finesse in the execution and recommendations as well. Yeah, that's I think that's a really, really great point. What else do you see since you are, you know, you do research on people who are actually using music technology? What else do you see as sort of the current trends and and the things that users are interested in? I've always been a big fan of the idea that technology and technology as a force of change is something that is unevenly distributed in the world. Therefore, you can already see in current habits what might then become the present moment. And that's a very academic way of saying we all know that Spotify is becoming more mainstream. It is arguably the mainstream now. Therefore, people have unlimited access to music. They're curating more playlists. And they're becoming more and more comfortable with recommendations through this service. With that, there are equally still people who are buying burnt CDs and making the soundtrack for their girlfriend. It's still absolutely unconditionally is happening in the world, right? We have this idea that once Spotify becomes the mainstream product, that suddenly people abandon all of these other habits. And to me, in my research, what I found is that is never true. There will always be people who combine a variety of technologies and who have a interesting and different mix of habits, whether it's Spotify plus Pandora plus SoundCloud or YouTube plus SoundCloud with the side of Bandcamp. No person is the same. And oftentimes our industry stereotypes of a music fanatic and a casual listener couldn't be more wrong and are way too generalized for anyone to get valuable information or understanding of. Exactly. There's always going to be this mix. And it's hard to say that Spotify is the way of the future and we have to stop producing every other form of music immediately. Absolutely. And I think... Our biggest flaw as music business thinkers, as professionals, is that it's very easy to generalize and say, we have now reached the access age, therefore people no longer want to own music. And it's like, well, they may not want to buy music, they may not want to own music, but that doesn't mean they still don't want to possess it and showcase it and display it to their friends in a variety of ways, or to get away from their own technologies and the various addictions and habits that come with them and just consume music the old-fashioned way, if you will. (laughs) And on that note, Kyle Boleyn is the author of Promised Land, Youth Culture, Disruptive Startups, and the Social Music Revolution. Kyle, thanks so much for being on Future of What today. Thank you so much for having me.
That was Dancers All by Death Vessel. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Patty Silverman. Patty, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having me. So we are talking today about the intersection of music and technology and the pluses and the minuses, the pitfalls and the the peaks of that little possibly sometimes unholy partnership. So we wanted to talk to you because you have been involved with this Music Tech Summit, which is a conference that happens every year. So why don't you give us a little background on the Music Tech Summit and how it came into being? Right. So Brian Zisk is the founder, along with his wife, Shoshana. And I've asked him before, like, how did you come up with this concept? And it was a couple of things. So firstly, Brian was going to Madame and meeting up with people from the San Francisco Music Tech community all the way in France. And he's like, why are we meeting up here? We all live in San Francisco and we're seeing each other in France. This doesn't make sense. We should be doing something locally. <laughs> yeah, so that that's was just one of the, smart. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> and then secondly, Brian is the co-founder of the Future of Music Coalition. Uh-huh. And they have a conference every year called the Future of Music Policy Summit. And it's really focused on the policy side, government-focused stuff. And in 2008, they skipped doing the conference because it was a presidential election year. And no one was paying attention to anything else in D.C., so it didn't make sense to do the conference. Uh-huh. And Brian really started to realize what he was interested in was the innovators, the entrepreneurs, people who are starting new models for the industry. And he was living in San Francisco, and the people who are doing those things were living in San Francisco. So then he started the SF Music Tech Summit. So it was kind of a twofold reason, but it was like, why don't we have something happening in the place where all of the innovation is focused? And yeah. That's San Francisco. Definitely. Yeah. So what have been the highlights, in your opinion, of the last 18 Music Tech Summits? Like, what what do you think are the real positive things that have come out of this meeting of the minds? Probably for me, because I've only been working on it for maybe the last six, to to estimate. I haven't been there since the beginning, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, what's been most positive is identifying those really innovative, forward-thinking companies very early. So one of the things I'm really deeply involved in is the startup competition. Mm -hmm. And every summit, we have hundreds of startups submit from all over the world, and we pick 10 to demo at the event. And these are companies we think are like the future of the industry who are doing really innovative, interesting things. And we feature them every year. And a lot of them have gone on to become pretty big. I think the space allows for a lot of like early identification of new models and and new companies popping up and supporting them and getting to where they need to be to actually change the industry. Who's come out of that program that you would say has been pretty successful? There's a company, Ticket Fairy, who's selling millions of dollars of tickets a year at this point. Mm -hmm. They're, They're the one that like comes to mind immediately. We have a lot of them that are not like huge yet, but I think they're gonna be huge. I think the one that I'm, super excited about out of this set. So if people are coming to this conference, they'll see this demo is this company called Crate. And they allow you to pre-fund, crowdfund vinyl. So there's no upfront cost. They can do minimum orders of a hundred and you get the vinyl once it's been sold at that quantity in six to eight weeks, which is like unheard of. They're totally changing the way vinyl production and distribution works. Whoa. So yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff. I mean, there's hundreds of companies I could I could list for you out of this, but there's 
some that just come to mind as they are killing it or they're going to be killing it. So people should know about them. So I would say, you know, from my perspective, the thing that I worry about most and the thing that is like such a big question mark for me with the music and tech thing is that when you're when you're someone like me on the music side, you see these tech companies and they, you know, I get emails every day, you know, with a new startup, with a new idea. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, well, not always, but sometimes I'm like, it's like you never even talked to anyone in the music business. You know what I mean? It's like you're solving a problem that nobody has. Okay. You know, it's like sometimes music, sometimes tech companies, they get they get really excited and they're like, we're going to do this and it's going to be amazing because this is going to really help people. But it's kind of like it's not a problem that, and it's not a real world problem for the music industry. Got it. Now, that said, there's obviously tech companies that are completely creating fabulous solutions, not only to problems, but to just, you know, I mean, like, look at Spotify, look at streaming, look at, you know, everywhere we're at. It's like if tech companies didn't strike out and, and try new things you know, we wouldn't necessarily advance in the ways that we have. Right. So that's totally awesome. I just always wonder, like, what is the research process like with these people who work at tech companies? Do they ever talk to people in the music business and say, this is, you know, do you need this? Is this something that you guys are looking for? Or is it kind of more like everyone just comes out with ideas and ones that seem hot stick? And do you know what I'm saying? It's like, where's the research? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I totally know what you're saying. Yeah. And I came from some, I started my career in the label world. So I worked at Columbia Records and I was on the team that the tech companies were coming to to pitch. So mm. I have a very deep insight into both sides of that picture. Right. And and I'd say like, I, I totally see your point, but also all the companies I talk to are super dedicated to going, like if they're building a platform that they want artists to be using, they go out and they talk to hundreds of artists and figure out, is this what you need? Or should we pivot and do something else? That's good. There's probably examples of companies who do not do that. But I'd say like nearly 100% of the ones that I interact with are because they're coming to the Music Tech Summit and they're interested in actually moving things forward. And if they're not doing that, I personally challenge them. And I say, well, have you thought about this? Or that business model isn't going to work because labels aren't going to pay you to run campaigns with them. Stuff like that. So it's kind of like, I think the intentions are always positive, mm-hmm. but it's up to people on the label side and, and people are doing what you're doing to, to say like, wait a minute, this is what we need. Right. And I think giving them that input is so important because these people are smart and they want to build something that's going to change the industry and support artists. But maybe they don't know every little bit of the industry because as you know, unless you've worked at a label or been a manager, or all these different things, you can read about it, but you don't really know what makes sense to build for those kind of people. Exactly. So definitely like when those people reach out to you, you should respond and say like, let's get on the phone and talk about why this isn't going to work and what I think you should be doing differently because that's going to support the whole ecosystem anyway. Well, you know, what's funny is it's like the problem is being jaded. I mean, I'm glad to know that you came from the label side because you'll completely understand my perspective. (laughs) The problem is being jaded by experience, you know, and being, it's like jaded by experience versus bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about the potential, right? Right. Because what happens, what usually happens is I'll get an email about, you know, this is an amazing new app that helps artists connect with their fans. Text such and such, and then your fans can do this, and then they can stream your show, or they can buy your merch from the show, or, you know, it's something something that really sounds awesome. Yep. And you're like, in your bright-eyed, bushy-tailed self, you're like, that's amazing. And then in my, like, 10 years of running a label experience, I'm like, 
you can't make an artist tweet about their show. Right, right. Like (laughs) that's a big issue. (laughs) Artists are so hard to get to do this. Yeah, this kind of stuff, and and it's really and it's like that's an issue that I think is actually one of those where the reality for me at least has been like a bummer. It's like it's it is really difficult to get artists to tweet about stuff or Mm -hmm. or even you know to do things for themselves. That said, when you look around the marketplace today, you know you see the most success coming from often from artists who are extremely dedicated and hardworking and they do take those opportunities. Right. And they do, you know, I mean, I always think of Jack Conte and Patreon and, yep. you know, his band Pamplemousse. Yep. And it's like, there's a guy who is not going to let anything stop him. He was going to make that happen yeah. for himself. And that's totally. really great to see. And there's a lot of artists that are like that. The problem is 100% of artists aren't like that. And so it's like these great tech ideas that kind of fall flat for the simple reason that, you know, artists aren't going to use them. Right. And I think it's also, you know, not every company is going to make it in any industry. Right. So what I always challenge the companies I talk to, I say, artists, label people, managers, they're already using so many things. And if you're going and asking them to be on your platform too, you need to have a really high value explanation as to why they need to be like whether it's going to generate new revenue or expose them to new fan bases or whatever it may be like it needs to be built in already so that they're not the one driving users to your platform it has to be mutually beneficial in some way so rethinking some of that but you're right like it's it's very hard to get artists to do things and i think if they know especially if you're like an independent artist if you know this platform is going to drive revenue like patreon does you're going to use it. Right. And if it starts to work, you're going to use it even more. Right. So it's kind of rethinking that a little bit of like, you have to come in with a really great pitch and, a, and be able to prove that it's going to work to keep people there. And I think that's good that that's the way it works because then we, we figure out which tools are actually, you know, beneficial and, and ones that are going to stick around. Right. And it is a weeding out process, like you said, because things come up. And I feel like in the last 10 years, you've seen stuff come up, you know, apps or or tech ideas where it's cool because even if the artist doesn't do it, like the label could do it or the manager Mm -hmm. could do it or whoever is, you know, some some member of the artist team could do it. Right. And it would be fine. And so those have tended to stick around. Like if someone else can handle it, not the artist, that's great. But there are certain aspects where fans aren't dumb and they know the authenticity of an artist's voice. So if you're like asking an artist to tweet or to like do something that expresses their personality, it's really hard to make that be a manager's job because the fans know. Yeah. You know, they 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 sense that. They're like, this is not my artist's authentic voice. This is not the artist posting. Like I want, you know, and they and they turn away from that. They're like, ugh, Mm -hmm. you know. I just feel like I'm being marketed to by some company. Right. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not real. Right, right. So, you know, that's another thing. It's like you have to sort of figure out who can use this and use it effectively. And promote it out, of course. One of the companies that's really blowing up now, I don't know if you know about Musical.ly. No. Are you familiar with them? Uh-uh. They are, they are really targeted on like a young female demographic, but they're this app where you can record videos and you're either like, lip syncing or dancing or whatever, but you, you pick a song and you record a video. There's like editing built in and in 15 seconds, you have this video. And the cool thing about this platform is artists will be charting on there who have not submitted and ha- not done any promotion. So platforms like that are going to work really well. Mm-hmm. So these kind of companies, they're figuring it out and it blows my mind. That's why I'm excited about what's happening in music tech right now. I'm 
Like I am not phased or burnt out on music tech at all. I think we are in the most exciting space right now because there's platforms out there that have a built-in audience of like millions of people that are using Musical.ly and artists are getting exposure to a new audience they never thought they could. So these kind of companies exist as well who are just like blowing up artists with very little effort on behalf of the artists. And if the artists see that happening and they do a little bit of work, it becomes a huge payoff. So identifying ones who like, yeah, I think it's good to experiment with some of the early tools in combination with some of this stuff that's really going places and, and already established and, and figuring out how you can leverage both of those to kind of make things happen promotionally, revenue-wise, or whatever the artist is working towards. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And I feel like as technology advances, just the stuff that's available creates new opportunities, you know, things that we never knew were possible before. Mm-hmm. Now there's the tech to make it happen. And so I, I agree. It's like a super exciting time. And, you know, I keep talking to people who talk about the video game model, you know, and how mm-hmm. we've just scratched the surface in music. Like we've barely scratched the surface in music of this yep. awesome video game model because video games are just doing so well right now. It's like an incredible right. industry. So, you know, There's a lot of potential, I completely agree, out there for this synergy between music and tech. Totally. And it's the new revenue models, which I think excite me the most, because more and more artists are doing the DIY thing, and they can actually make a living doing that. Like Natalie, which is the other half of Pomplamos outside of Jack Conte, she's making over $6,000 per video she releases with Patreon. Right. I mean, this couldn't have happened five years ago, 10 years ago. I mean, the labels were worried about people illegally downloading and we now have new models that people are actually willing to give money to artists, which is crazy to me. Yeah. We went from people stealing to like, we will give you $6,000 a month for a video. Bandcamp's another one that I'm just like so in love with. Mm -hmm. Yes. We love Bandcamp. They're great. And the pay what you want model, like I have friends who have gotten $50 for an album that they were asking $10 for. It's just a lot of exciting stuff. Yeah. That happens all the time. You know, we use Bandcamp extensively for all our artists, and that's something we see all the time is, you know, an artist will put out a record and someone will pay $50 or $100 for it because they want to support the artist. And I love it that that is, you know, that's sort of what we learned from the crowdfunding model is like you have to, and I think it was Benji Rogers from Pledge Music who said it to me originally, Mm -hmm. you have to give people the opportunity to pay more. Because they want to. They want to feel invested. They want to feel like this is actually, you know, something that they're helping because it's their favorite artist. And and that's, you know, there's a little bit of truth in the fact when music became devalued by the, you know, the free MP3 thing, Mm -hmm. it kind of took it away from having an emotional resonance with people. It's like, it doesn't feel like anything. You didn't have to put anything into it. You know, you didn't have to buy it. You didn't have to work for the money and walk down to the record store and hand over your cash and like get your big piece of vinyl and your that feels like a real thing. Right. MP3s don't feel like anything. So it's like people want that emotional experience. Totally. And I think like music tech sometimes gets a bad rap. Well, tech gets a bad rap with a lot of musicians because they look at streaming and how little money they're being paid. And I always say that's the wrong perspective. Right. Because the other option was people are going to steal your music. And if you're an unknown artist, you need to be on streaming services because discovery potential is huge. Like, I use Discovery Weekly pretty religiously, and I've discovered probably like 50 new bands in the last six months, and I go and buy tickets to their shows, and I buy their merch, and I support them in so many ways, and I wouldn't have known about them if streaming didn't exist and these playlists didn't exist. Sure. So it's, it's a really great discovery potential 
which, you know, I know the payout is low. We all know this is happening, but it's really, like Troy Carter says, it's a scale model. Mm-hmm. Like that's the way it works. And if, if you're a big name artist and you have the privilege to pull off Spotify, like Taylor Swift, you're going to have people illegally downloading. Like when Taylor Swift did that, people were illegally downloading her music. Right. That's, just, that's the alternative. So I always try to balance that, which like tech is not the enemy. These companies actually really want to help artists and, and move things forward and I think we need to change our perspective a little bit and help artists understand that this isn't like they're not losing in this. They're having an alternative to what was a really broken system. And that's exciting to me. And, and we could only go forward and move forward from there and, and create new opportunities. We're not going to go back to what we were at, which was, you know, CDs or, or pirating, basically. And on that note, (laughs) Patty Silverman is an advisor for the San Francisco Music Tech Summit. Patty, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Yeah, no problem. was Why by Essie Jane. Support for the future of what comes from Saturn Duplication. Located next door to Revival Drum Shop off 20th and East Burnside, Saturn Duplication offers quick local CD duplication and design for Portland area bands and musicians. Learn more online at saturnduplication.com. You're listening to the future of what. We're talking to Bruce Pavitt and Adam Farish of 8STEM. Guys, welcome to the future of what. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to have you on here. So your app, 8STEM, has just gotten into the App Store on iTunes, which is a big thing for you. Yeah. So tell us how it's going. Developing technology is a very, very complicated process, especially if you are doing something that operates in uncharted territory. And so, you know, when we started this project, we anticipated it being very difficult 
and even that was an underestimation of how how challenging it would be. So <laughs> piecing together all the all the parts that actually make this work has been an amazing process. It's, it's a it's a hero's journey for for Bruce and I. And there is always this looming question whether Apple will just decide to reject you because they don't like you or think that you're a competitive product. And and clearing that gatekeeper hurdle is a big feather in our cap. So we did it. We made it to the starting gate. Yay! Great. I'd like to back a second and just let listeners know what we're doing and what what we're doing is it's a it's a pretty big play first of all we are unveiling a new music format and this is the first one of the very first interactive music formats available there is one competitor that maybe adam can riff on but essentially we're we're introducing an interactive digital format the player that plays that format and we're curating a host of artists who are participating in this project. So that's essentially what we're doing in a nutshell. So ultimately, my understanding of how 8STEM works is that fans can go to your 8STEM site or your app, and they can remix songs that have been approved to use by the artist. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. So part of this is talking on your part is to talk artists into trying this out and being willing to put up their music for remix. Am I correct? Am I on the right track with that? It is indeed. We are open to pretty much any genre of music or any artist that is open to having fans completely deconstruct their music, reformat it, and then share it with their friends. And it's been an interesting conversation. Mostly indie artists who aren't affiliated with labels are the ones that are typically most open to this idea. But it's been an ongoing conversation. Additionally, when we receive the music from the artist, it's typically broken down into four stems. And then what we do is we connect with our stable of producers and have a remix of that happen. So the remixer typically adds another four stems of material. So when the fan accesses the song, they will be able to engage and manipulate eight different tracks or stems. And that's that's kind of how it works. Okay, so now cater to my label persona here for one second. Yes. How do you pay royalties on this? <laughs> Is this something where the artist waives a royalty or because it stems with, with four extra stems added, it's actually considered like a new song and it's there isn't a master recording to license or how does that work? Here's, we work it in the, just really simply. And this, in, the, in the process of getting this out the gate and kind of evangelizing the idea, there's no need for us to be nitpicky about how this works at this stage because it's, it's totally radical. So our approach to this is that everything, all of the producers that we hire, including all of the fan-based remixes that people do within our app, are all owned exclusively by the original artist. Okay. So that's how it works. So you could call it a new work if you want, which you probably would as an artist or a label person, especially if you're going to monetize it separately. So the short and sweet is, is that the original content provider who, who supplied the seed content is the sole beneficiary of everything that happens within the platform. Gotcha. Is there a monetization in the platform yet, or is that something that you think is down the road? There are actually many monetization plans in place, and we're testing those plans to see where the real traction is with users. We have to see where users 
are, or listeners or fans or whatever you call them, are willing to separate with their dollars in order to engage with music. Bruce and I both come from the artistic side of the music business. We're an artist-centric company, and we believe that music is a commodity that should be paid for. And so what we've done with our platform is, is open it up so that downloading music is, there's many statistics that say that that is kind of like on the, on the downslope. Streaming music is where, you know, quote unquote, the future is with streaming. But the, the revenue splits are still very low and it's complex in such a way that is difficult to understand. So we're looking at deeper levels of user engagement to monetize. So that may look like putting new sounds that somebody else created into a song that you're remixing and paying for that. It could look like filters being sold within a song that you have produced to alter it and make a different remix. And it could also look like a remix being posted to Spotify or Apple Music as a crowdsourced model where the original artist gets paid every time that song is listened to. Are you familiar with a company called Dubset? or a company called Metapop, by any chance? No. Both of these companies have established relationships with different record labels in order to encourage professional and fan remixes, which will eventually be streamed on both Apple and Spotify. So they're kind of a a gatekeeper for remixes. Mm -hmm. And we have recently worked out deals with both Dubset and Metapop, whereby the remixes that will be created by fans will ideally get funneled through to Apple and Spotify streaming services, and then some revenue will be generated through those streams. But this hasn't quite kicked in yet, but that's kind of our major monetization play. Gotcha. It seems like fewer and fewer people are paying for downloads. That was kind of the initial monetization strategy. But as things move towards streaming, we've decided to work with Upset and and Metapop. Yeah, that makes sense. So my understanding is that the original impetus for this was your feeling that the next wave in music and tech was basically fan engagement. Yes. And that getting fans engaged with music was really going to be the wave of the future. Can you expand on that? Yes. Well, Fundamentally, my, my core take on music and culture, and this, is, this has been the case since the late 70s when I was going to punk rock clubs, is that alternative culture really is based on the idea of participation. And whether you look at punk rock culture or Burning Man culture, it's kind of the same. Scenes get stimulated through audience participation. And I believe that with the 8-stem format and allowing fans to engage and remix this material that you're going to have a higher level of creative involvement from the fan, and it's going to help energize the artist fan base and energize the culture. So essentially, it's, it's always been the case. Participation has always been the answer to energizing a culture, and this is just a way to do it uh, digitally on the internet. So what I'm interested in was how you guys got together and how you decided, because you know I'm sure you guys have seen this too, a lot of times people come to making apps you know, from the tech side with a whole bunch of techie ideas that they think sound really cool, but they have no real notion of how the music business works and, and what fans are going to really want. And I feel like, you know, you're, you guys are coming from a different perspective. Bruce obviously knows a lot about the music scene and, you know, what fans might want. So how did you guys come together to, to devise this idea? We met on the step of a fundraising event 
in maybe 2004. I was a music industry refugee on the artistic and production side, and Bruce was a refugee on the label and business side. And we were just two music-obsessed country gentlemen who struck up a conversation and spent the next seven years talking about the future of music and, and <laughs> what, it would, what, what it would look like. That sounds like everybody I know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And so that's yeah, that's how that's how we came together. Cool. Yeah, we went to a lot of we went it, to a lot of crazy parties together, which was very <laughs> helpful. Yeah. So before Definitely. we decided to, we had basically operated as a team, <laughs> kind of going to music festivals and collecting data on the scene and emerging cultures, as you know, as as creative people do. And when we really started talking about you know what does the future of music really look like, we were 100% unified. That, that it was going to be mobile-based and it was going to be instantaneous and social. And that those, those are the kind of pillars that brought us to them that sort of drove the interactivity piece. And that is the social piece of it, that it's the, the wall between creator, artist, musician, and fan, quote-unquote fan, that traditional model is very segregated and separate. And so what we're doing right. is providing a conduit so that those two personalities and, and ecosystems can collaborate and create new things together. I, I would just want to throw out that that's, that's always been the, the back and forth, though. And when I was going to Evergreen and Olympia, it seemed like everybody going to school was trying to form a band or put out cassettes or put out a zine. And so there's always been those who think that, again, higher level of engagement and participation is, is where culture should be going. And then it drifts apart and gets very centralized and very elitist and aristocratic. And then it circles back to participation again. Just my two cents. What kind of response have you guys gotten from the artists who've already contributed their music about the remixes that their fans are making? They're stuck. They're stuck. We work, yeah, we work, uh, we worked ahead, with this one act in Seattle, Moto Pony. We had a remix done. They were very excited about the reinterpretation. The first step is kind of a more of a professional reinterpretation. And then from there, the fans mix the different elements of the two mixes. And we've had a tremendously positive response from the musicians, for sure. Cool. I should also note. I should also note that we've designed the system and the mobile app so that you really can't make anything that sounds bad. So no matter what your what, what your level of skill is or how proficient you think you are with music, it's kind of like you can't take. You know, with Instagram, you can take a picture of a coffee cup or a mud puddle and put a filter on it, and it'll be. You know, people go like, "Oh!" Right. When you post it on Facebook, like that's so amazing. That's exactly what right. we are trying to do with music, so that everything that comes out of our app and represents the original artist as a branded piece of media, that it always sounds good. Yeah, that would be a good analogy. That's awesome. It's the Instagram of music. I like it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So. I think a lot of, of people have started talking about video games as an inspiration for where we might see the future because of the incredible success of monetizing yeah. video games, you know, with the whole thing of opening new levels. Did that inspire you guys? 
Actually, if we if you take that to the next level, you're going to be talking about VR, and we've already started discussions with a couple of VR companies. Adam, you want to riff on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in the music industry should take cues from the from the gaming industry. The music industry is hovering around fifteen billion dollars a year in annual revenue, and the game industry is hovering around one hundred and fifty billion dollars a year in annual revenue. Both represent media and experiences that end users enjoy, and so. The gamification of music, it's, it's almost like when you're an artist or, or, or a content creator, you kind of think of that as a cheesy sort of sellout move. But what gamification, you know, what that, what that term really means is a deeper level of user engagement. So it doesn't have to be, here, you get to remix this song, and if people really like it, then you get a cape that allows you to have special powers with music or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's more about here are these new things, these new tools that you can use to create more things that you will enjoy and that your social networks will enjoy listening to. So whether that's new sounds that are created by other artists that you can put into songs that you're working on or filters and effects that you can use to alter the music that you're remixing and that that is actually something that is earned rather than purchased with cash, then definitely yes. Then, then that is a that is a cue that that we're going after and exploring. And music as the deeper user experience is where it needs to go in order to get the numbers up, so that people can actually make a living, or more people can make a living. Yeah. And as an aside, I I do believe that we will be integrating our technology in with some VR platforms here in the not so distant future, taking gaming to a whole nother level. Wow. I'm pretty excited to see where this goes, you guys. I think this is an exciting moment for music. Okay, Adam Farish and Bruce Pavitt, they are co-founders of 8STEM, and I really appreciate you both being with us on The Future of What today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Portia.
was Daylight by Jeff Hansen. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Taishi Fukuyama, founder of Crates. Taishi, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you for having us. So this is a really cool and exciting and interesting service. You guys do small batch vinyl for people, and you do it really quickly. It's kind of blowing my mind. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We do exactly that and actually a little bit more. But we're really happy to be seeing a lot of traction from the U.S. and the U.K. and really worldwide. Yeah, because you started in Japan a few years ago, correct? That's right. We launched last year in May. In May. And since then, you've done like over 2,000 projects? Yeah, so we've had about 2,000 projects, meaning artists, labels, well, even sometimes a music blog come and uh, start projects. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. Yep. So you have a website at com, and people can go there and they can basically order vinyl and as quantities as small as 100 pieces. Is that basically the story? That's right. Not only can they order as in like a broker, you would work with a broker, but we also have the ability to do crowdfunding. So that's basically no money up front. You can start a crowdfunding project for your vinyl starting from 100 copies. And once you reach your 100 or 200 or whatever threshold that you set, then we would start pressing up your vinyl. And then we could not only press them, we could fulfill them to all of your individual backers. And if you do decide to opt into our store delivery program, which is our distribution, you can actually sell them at the wholesale price that you set directly to like HMV or like Fat Beats in New York if you're a hip hop artisan and to like about 200 stores worldwide as well. Okay, that is totally insane. <laughs> <laughs> How are you guys able to do that? I mean, I have I have many questions. I run a record label and uh, our turnaround time is not six to eight weeks. So I want to know, first off, how do, how do you achieve that amazing number? Well, we have a great relationship with our primary pressing plant right now, which is GZ Vinyl in the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. And not only that, we do have the ability to press in other places that we do have experience with. And the way we operate is that we kind of have like a, a bird's eye view about what capacity which plant has at any given moment and we would make sure that you're getting the fastest turnaround times and the cheapest shipping rates, and we're mixing and matching, optimizing that all the time. Wow. So what did you guys do beforehand that led you to have these connections and everything that allow you to, to do this exact business? So we're a team of eight. Our core management team is a core team of four, but we really have various experiences in the music industry not only in Japan, but our COO is from France. And, well, I'm from Japan. We've had experiences as musicians, as artists, as record producers, as label owners, as event promoters, all sorts of pla- all sorts of places. And I think a lot of us are, what we have in common is that we're really passionate about how we can ultimately do two things, which is make a better listening experience for the music fan, and by doing so, to contribute to kind of like the sustainability of the livelihood of the artist, basically make the money. And at the time when we launched Crates, when we had this idea, it would seem like, you know, the stream was going to become a thing where people are going to start consuming music that way, but we weren't really sure if all of us are going to get paid that way. But we were pretty sure that vinyl is going to stay for 
the next couple of years at least. And that final is, is a little bit more democratic in a way that anyone can get paid the same amount. Right. So that's where we kind of went all in on the vinyl side, raised a little bit of money and launched it a year and a half ago, I guess, about and growing slowly but surely since, I guess. Yeah, no, it's a genius idea because our minimum LP pressing is generally 500. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if we're working with a band where we don't think they're going to sell 500 vinyl copies, we're just not going to do it. Right. But, you know, if that band wants to put out their own vinyl, until now, they haven't had an option because it's been cost prohibitive. And, you know, like I said, you you can usually not get less than 500. So 100 pieces is this amazing opportunity for a lot of bands who otherwise would never get to have vinyl. Yeah, I mean, we do see a lot of you know, excitement, just the fact that it's 100. Another thing is that we have made the process like just dead simple. Yeah. It, as long as you have the artwork and, and your music, yeah. it really takes minutes to just launch one of these projects. Whereas you know, going through a website, going through the... F- Whatever that process is, is it's first of all, it's never been unified or, or standardized. So it's, it varies from broker to broker, from vendor to vendor. And the thing is, like we've made it so you just upload your music, start crowdfunding, take pre-orders, and then you can even start with just your MP3s for audio previews for your fans to listen to on your site. And once you reach those goals, we'll require you to send us proper audio files and, and your artwork. But you can just get started really with zero knowledge about how, how this stuff really works. And the design of the website is really beautiful because it's really simple. Like you cannot be confused <laughs> by this, which wow. is more, so more than a lot of, of websites can say. What would you say the average time it takes for a crowdfunded project to make it to its goal? That's a that's a great question. Of the two thousand that we've hosted so far, we're really not public saying like how many of those have actually been successfully funded, but it's not like thousands of them. Right. So right. it really varies because some of them have done five hundred in matter of, matter of days. Right. And what we're seeing is that you know it really comes down to the ability for our project owners, meaning arts or labels, to first of all get the word out in an efficient manner, and for a project owner that already has some sort of following to to bless that message out to. Mm-hmm, right. We see projects go really fast. That's so interesting. I mean, and that that could be, I mean, in my mind, that's sort of a way for a band to find out if they're ready for vinyl. You know, if you can't if you can't sell a hundred copies to your fans, then maybe you're not ready for maybe you don't have a hundred fans. You know, yeah, well, you know something that's that's such a great way to put it, because that's the perspective of the record label. And I think as and sometimes what I say to an artist is that it's a great way to visualize, dig up your first 100 super fans who you need to really hold on to those like emails as if like they're your bread and butter because like they're going to keep coming to your shows and buying your merch and you know maybe even buy your digital download. And so it's a great way to figure out who your most hardcore fans are. Absolutely. And actually, because we do start from 100, not only can you opt into store delivery and have HMV and others participate in your crowdfunding or pre-orders, we make it a little bit easier for the artist to reach that 100. You can also bulk buy any number of those records yourself too, to like maybe sign and bring to the road or to your shows or something. So we do see a lot of artists doing that as well, like crowdfunding maybe 50 and then maybe putting up 10 for store delivery and bulk buying the rest themselves or, or, you know, you can play around with that. Absolutely. Another interesting thing about you guys is that you were actually accepted to the Abbey Road Reds Incubator program. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. How has that been going for you guys? It's it's amazing, first of all, that that we have been chosen to participate in this program. We're very honored and excited at the same time. Not only, I mean, I've obviously to this crowd, don't need any explanation who Abby Road are, but also we get the chance to work very closely with the parent company Universal Music in UK, which is a very, very exciting opportunity for us. Again, like the ability to, to do really fast and small batch. And when I say this, at any process, do we not compromise on the quality of the vinyl? We have the ability to give label owners to think about which record can we could we do a reissue of at the scale of 100 units in a way that really makes, that doesn't take any of our effort or time away, except for maybe getting the word out. Usually, when a label would reissue their catalog, they could only really think about the, maybe like the, their marquee properties that, you know, maybe it's a Bob Dylan or like a it's one of these like really headline artists that was a no-brainer to do. But you know, when you really think about like the vast catalog, the longer tail of things, I'm sure there are so many more records out there, albums out there that have 200 people waiting for a reissue that just never got it, and have maybe been looking for that record on Discogs or you know on the secondary market. So much of this final revival has been powered by that, the the secondary market where the artist or the label didn't see a penny of revenue of. We're hoping to you know, be able to provide another option to reissue those records. So it brings a little bit more money back to the industry. Well, I think it's a super cool thing. Thanks for doing what you do. Taishi Fukuyama is the co-founder of Crates.com. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Thank you, Portia. It's our pleasure. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Death Vessel, Essie Jane, Jeff Hansen, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>